Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Hi guys, welcome to Gross Anatomy Podcast. <laughs> Where we explore the sights, smells, and sounds of medicine and how it relates to pop culture, movies, TVs, books, podcasts, and the world around us, and even plants, and Lauren's plant, which one of these days I'm going to post. Maybe I'll post it today. And even botany. Sometimes we talk about Even botany. And I am... On vacation for one more day, Dr. Jason Cohen, that is true. And you are? And I am Lauren Taylor, and we are the number two anatomy podcast, human anatomy podcast. Nice. I think we're the number one, but whatever. It's all good. We must be close. We must be close to number one. Um, Yesterday was Doctor's Day, so give us an update. What happened on National Doctor's Day? Did you get a celebration? Yeah, like probably about 100,000 people reached out to me and told me how wonderful I was. Patients, doctors, just strangers all kind of reached out and and said, thank you for everything you've done, for giving up your youth for us. Thank you so much. No, nothing, nothing happened other than- Nothing happened? No. I don't don't even think I got, I don't even think I got a single special acknowledgement from anybody other than you, Lauren. So thank uh, you. Well, happy National Doctors' Day. And thank you. to let our audience know, and your patients that might be listening know, you do get a lot of gifts from patients, which we post about sometimes. You do get a lot of nice things from patients. That's true. That's true. And, and you know, that's a whole fun and fun topic, too, is like gifts that patients give. Lately, I've had a patient who has a great lemon tree who's been giving me lemons and I, and I, and I like lemons and we use lemons often in our household. So, so that's a fun gift, even though, you know, it's, it's, it's all the thought that counts. Since I know you're um, mainly plant-based, there's a good cookbook called love and lemons. So it's like a lot of lemon vegetarian recipes. It's my youngest daughter's 15th birthday tomorrow, April 1st. Whoa. And unfortunately, it's Passover. And unfortunately, for her as well as myself, we're both trying to be as vegan and plant-based as possible. Two separate things, kind of. Um, so I'm trying to make a vegan Passover birthday cake right now. It's in the oven baking. So I wow. can't forget about it. Yeah, it's banana-based with like some chocolate you know, dark chocolatey kind of stuff, you know, bittersweet chocolate that's not milk-based. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. Does she not even get any frosting? Because that's not vegan, I guess. Well, I'm making a chocolate, like a chocolate, chocolate thick frosting. It's going to be horrible. We'll cover it with candles, something pretty. Exactly. All right. Well, happy birthday to your youngest. Thank you. Oh, so gifts. I get a lot of alcohol as gifts. That's that's a biggie. I'm not a big drinker, but it's always fun to get alcohol. And if ever, you know, we have people over, it's always nice to go into the stash and bring home different sorts of alcohol, champagne. Um, the best kind of gifts, though, are when patients offer us, like, their house to use somewhere for, like, a weekend or something. That Those are really, the. the there's nothing better than that. That's nice. Like what? Like in yeah. Palm Springs or something like that? Yeah, anywhere on the we I had one patient actually my kids were asking about it. One of my kids, my middle daughter was asking about it yesterday who had this gorgeous house in Malibu on the beach. And he and I just really bonded. Unfortunately, he he died um, you know, some years later, but he and I really bonded. He kind of reminded me of my dad a little bit. I think he I you know, he we totally bonded. So he had us over. He actually let us use his beach house in Malibu one weekend. It was great. 
then we trashed it and never heard from him. No, <laughs> yeah. no, I that was sweet. That. You know, it's an interesting thing about being a doctor and finding the balance about taking gifts and not taking gifts and getting close to your patients and not getting too close to your patients. And it's an interesting balance and fine line. I know a lot of doctors who are masters at it, like some plastic surgeons, like they'll go on their yachts, patients' yachts, and really, you know, are masters at kind of getting the benefits of like that. Then I know a lot of other doctors who kind of refuse any gift at all or get close to patients, you know, and they're like, I'm the doctor, they're the patient, and that's it, you know, and never mix it. I, I'm kind of in between. I, I definitely, there are definitely some patients that I kind of bond with over the years um, and build relationships with. Um, so. so it's just the doctor. It's like purely what, however you want to define that ethical argument, or is there actually like people like above you, like on the board that are like put in place rules? Well, I'm a, I'm a private practice guy, so there's really no rules. But, I, but there are rules like at hospitals and employed, employed physicians. There are certain rules, or even employees of a hospital, doesn't matter if they're doctors or not, certain hospitals have like rules about how much money of a gift you could accept. You know, could you get a, take a $50 gift card from Starbucks? Or I, I, think, I think the current thinking is anything less than $50 you could accept and anything more by, by the rules of whatever the hospital sets, you can't. So, you know, I know people have gotten into trouble, you know, um, employees of, of hospitals because of that too in the past. Today's episode is all about rapid fire questions. And now you're just bringing up more questions I didn't know I had. So what kind of trouble can you get in if you accept gifts that are they, too big from patients? They get fired because it's just like violating whatever their rules are about just, and I don't totally understand why. I think it's a little bit of an accounting issue. I think it's a little bit of a, what if something happens and accountability and hospitals, you know, are these big bureaucratic entities. So I think, I think it's just kind of like, you know, they set certain rules and, and that's it. And. But as a private you know, practice, you set your own rules or you have to go yeah. by the hospital you work at anyway. No. We're, we set our own rules. We're private practice doctors. We could do basically what we want. The question, though, probably would be like, what if a staff member got offered a gift or something? But in my mind, that's great. You know, if one of my staff members, you know, one of my patients wanted to gift my, my staff member, that'd be great. Okay. So last week we had a Grey's Anatomy episode. Check it out. We reviewed the pilot. Yeah. So um, not that I don't think it's a, it's a pretty good show, but... Um, because my husband and I had nothing to watch, we continued watching for a while, and it, mm. it, gets, uh, it gets pretty soapy. I don't know if you continue to watch anymore. Right. No, I, I haven't. I've seen episodes over the years. I'd like to watch another episode or two, but that's how it's described it is a medical soap opera. Like it, right. It's more of like a soap opera, and it just happens to be situated and well-written in a hospital, Right. right. Yes, but it just brought about so many questions. And then we had a question from a listener, and then we had a bunch of questions from my husband as he's watching these shows for you. Okay, and so he's I our guinea pig. So yeah, rapid so I wanted, fire. let's go. All right, all right, all right. Okay, first, are surgeons' hands insured? In the episode, there was one episode where Dr. Burke was, they were mad at him because they said, your hands are insured for $2 million because he hurt himself. Right. Is that a thing? To my knowledge, it's not. But we all have to have mouth, um, not have to, but we all have or are supposed to have uh, disability insurance, which means that if you get injured, 
you collect a certain amount of, you know, disability and you pay for that. And I don't know, I don't know what hospitals insurance rates of disability are for their employees, but it's not like having your hands insured. It's like disability insurance. If you get sick on the job, you know, it, you get but if something happened to your hands because you're a top right. surgeon, a top thyroid, parathyroid surgeon, you wouldn't get like that kind of amount. Maybe in the olden days you could you could get a lot of disability insurance. These days it's really expensive and insurance companies don't don't won't sell you those kind of policies. So I think I think the most I have if I get injured will be fifteen thousand dollars a month, which is a decent amount. Yeah. But you know, for what for then the level of years over. Yeah, pretty much. So and the interesting thing is in the olden days, the insurance policies like if you were a surgeon and you went on disability, you could practice internal medicine and still collect your disability. You just can't go to the OR, but you could be a medical doctor or a psychiatrist or whatever. These days you can't do anything within the medical field if you start collecting your disability. Otherwise you'll stop collecting disability. So it's it's really hard, you know. Oh, okay. I was hoping yeah. you'd say yes. I was like, it sounds very rock star. Like, you know, like I feel like some yeah. vocalists, like their voice is insured or something. Yeah, I think that's all myth. Okay. Um, then I have another question. We've talked about interns before, but what is like the normal involvement of interns? Like, do they actually like get your coffee? Do they do errands for you? And when do they actually start cutting? Like how long? Yeah, no. yeah. So an intern is a full-fledged doctor. You're an MD, you're a medical doctor. You, you've finished, graduated medical school. It's just the first year of your training as a doctor. You're a full-fledged doctor. And maybe in the olden days, way olden days, even before my time, the interns did stuff like that. Maybe it, when I was an intern, which is now 30 years ago, um, Maybe, you know, if the team on call at night was going to order food, maybe it would be the intern who would go downstairs and pay and pick it up or drive to the restaurant and pick it up, you know, or meet the delivery guy. The intern would do that. But that that would be but often it wasn't necessarily the intern because the intern was busy doing all the crap work at the hospital. The more senior level person because otherwise they would get stuck having to do the intern's work. So sometimes the mid-level person would go get the food so that they didn't have to do the intern's crap of taking wow. care of all the stuff in the hospital. Well, explain that. So like if you had an intern, what is the kind of work that you don't want to do anymore that you would give them that they need to learn? You had to check a patient's blood work and, and go check on the patient's urine output and go after the surgery, go make sure their wound looks okay and talk to them and see if they're breathing okay. And, and how they feel and that there's no fever and you had to do the post-op checks. You had to check their labs. In my day, it was often, these days there, there are ancillary services that do everything. But in my day, it was going to draw blood or having to go put a catheter in someone, which you see on the shows. Yeah. These days, the doctors don't really, at least at, you know, big hospitals, you know, big fancy hospitals, the doctors often aren't even the ones doing a lot of that stuff. They're collecting the data and, and making sure everything's getting done, making sure the orders, you know, putting in the orders, making sure they're carried out. But, you know, in my day, it was taking a patient, and we talked about it a little on other episodes, it was taking the patient to CAT scan if they needed to go. You okay. know, it was moving them and, and then moving them back and waiting for them. I mean, it was everything. 
Okay, so you've never given any of your interns like a weird project or something that you needed done personally? Never. The only thing would be maybe to get food or, or okay. pretty much that would be it. Okay. So in one of the Grey's Anatomy episodes, the plastic surgeon always has them getting coffee. Like he's, he's the yeah. dick in this show. What I try to do, you know, at this point in my life in general is I try not to ask anybody to do anything that I wouldn't do myself. That's good. I try That's to make nice. that a policy. Yeah. That's very nice. All right. Um, another question is since, this is from my husband. Since surgeons are really good with their hands, are you also good at sewing? Like, how fast can you sew a button? You know, I don't really sew buttons. But, yeah, theoretically, we're decent at sewing. I mean, because a lot of surgery is sewing, believe it or not. So, I mean, that's what a big part of surgery is, is putting in stitches. Um, but, you know, it's interesting. I just, we just had the pre-med program virtually, and we were talking to a cardiac, a heart surgeon, who's this amazing woman, like a trailblazer. Um, and she is clearly like, I, it sounds like she's an amazing technician too, you know, Mm -hmm. but one of the things we were saying that, that we learn as doctors, especially as surgeons is the enemy, there's an enemy of good. And I was telling her, I think we may have discussed it too, but during my training as a becoming a surgeon during my residency, a transplant surgeon, we were sewing in a graft, attaching a piece of artery to a, to a vein and I'm putting in the stitches and I I wanted them to be perfect. And he said to me, Jason, what's the enemy of good? And I I had no idea what he meant. And he goes, perfect. The enemy of good is either better or perfect. And what he means by that is sometimes getting something good is good enough. You know, and trying to get it perfect, you're liable to ruin it and make a mess of things. And good is good. You know, you don't, sometimes trying to improve on good is, is hurts things. Right. Also, like if a patient is, you know, sedated, it's a mat- time is important, right? A little bit, a okay. little bit. All right. This is another thing I saw in Grey's Anatomy. One of the surgeon's hands were hurt. So he was trying to like get his ability back. So they cut a chicken in half and then he would like sew it back together. Have you ever sewn anything like an, like that, like to practice at home? Have you ever done anything like that? Not at home, but I, I've sutured pillows and, and, to some degree, yeah, suturing. Yeah, you practice on animals a little bit. You know, cadavers or, or pig skin and, and uh, maybe chicken, yeah. Maybe practicing cooking, you know, different cooking tools on chicken breast and stuff like that. Not necessarily at home. Um, sewing an orange. I remember sewing an orange peel, orange peel. Like, do they have actual kind of like fake bodies you can practice on? The, the residents, the interns have a lot of practice on simulators and on models before they're really allowed to do a lot. There's, there's so much more, you know, when I was coming up, I was a med student operating on people. You don't really have that very rarely today, maybe a little bit, but, but not as much as I did. These days, there's a lot of simulators and practice and models that you have to practice on. When you had interns, were you, how did you know that they were ready to like actually cut on a human? Yeah. So internship is a year Mm -hmm. and it's really just the first year of residency these days is internship. And interestingly, residency, the whole reason why they call it a residency is in the olden days before my time, the doc, the young doctors actually lived at the hospital. That's why they called residents. They would move in for a month, however long the rotation was, one month, six weeks, three months. They didn't go home. 
Mm-hmm. They were residents. It, they were there 24-7. Seems easier to just live there almost. There's a lot less outside distraction. And your family would come meet you like in the cafeteria for dinner or something like that. That, that was kind of the extent of it. So there's a, you know, an old saying in surgery is see one, do one, teach one. And that's very generalized, but that's kind of always been the model for surgical education. Okay. You, you kind of assist or observe one first, then you are actually doing one under supervision, and then you get good enough where you're the teacher. But it's not always one, one, one. It's you see a bunch and you're assisting, and during the assisting process, you're given a little bit more to do each time until the point where you're ready. And sometimes it's during that first year, sometimes it's during your second or third year, and sometimes it's not, and, and they hold you back some years. But eventually you're the one doing it. And then eventually towards the end of your residency, and then certainly once you're an attending, a full-fledged surgeon, you're then, you're, then you're doing the teaching and okay. taking people through it. You know, my interest is, is mentorship and, and it's on my to-do list to write a book, is the field of medicine, especially surgery, is built for mentorship, for mentoring, because that's kind of right away, you're kind of instructed, there's always someone below you that you're teaching while someone above you is teaching you. So as an intern, you have your med students under you that you're kind of responsible to teach them. And and it's an interesting system, deliberately built to keep teaching. So often, like in Grey's Anatomy, like the young young new surgeons are like competing for the weirdest cases. Like they always want the hardest surgeries. That just for experience, or do you actually like a normal person would like put stuff on their resume? Is that something they would bring up in a job interview, or is it just for the experience? It's for the experience. It's not so much for a job interview, but it's for the experience. And especially when you're first starting out, all of those surgeries are really exciting, you know, because you've never done it, you've never seen it, or maybe you've seen it but you haven't done it. So there's a real interest to kind of get in and do those complex surgeries and get experience and learn and. And, and then get a lot under your belt so you really get learn how to do the surgery. And so it, it's not so much for resume building. It's really to build your repertoire of, of skills. Like, what's the weirdest surgery you ever did as a young doctor? And, like, did you actually, like, go on to tell people about it, like, when they were, like, interviewing you? No, it's, it's, not, it's not part of the interview process at all. It's, okay. it's more you, you kind of want to get your numbers and you, you want to get your skills um, and, and that's kind of really what it is. You know, you need a certain number of, of cases and surgeries and, and that's kind of the key thing. And then depending on what field you want to go into, you tend to try to make sure you get enough experience within that field. And you really want to shine and have a certain amount of expertise because based on how you do with those surgeries will be well, you know, if you worked with a certain doctor a lot, that doctor will make a, a, a mention, oh, Cohen's great, you should hire him for X, Y, Z. So it's a little bit of that too. And, or you may want a letter from that doctor. So, so it's hard to say. Okay. Um, another question, another thing that I, I know, like um, the two actresses that played conjoined twins in The Good Doctor, and there's yeah. also conjoined twins on Grey's Anatomy, and I feel like in other medical shows I've seen, have you ever operated on conjoined twins or known anyone who has? I never did, but there definitely are. I know, you know, at the big hospitals, I think they recently, or at least, you know, I've been at the hospital that I'm at for 20 years. I'm pretty sure they had 
some conjoined twin case fly up because that's where they get their material is from real life. So Right. So I was wondering uh, if you actually had experience with that and you just haven't said anything about it yet. I personally didn't, but I remember at the hospital where I am uh, that that happened. Okay. Because that yeah. seems like a case everyone would want to be on. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, and then another simple question. Are most surgeons general surgeons? Is that like 40% of like what people just go into? So the way medical and surgical education is, is it's been changing over the years. Kind of, even when I was training, which is 30 years ago now, many of the specialties of surgery, so there's urology, which does kidneys and the, and the male and female uh, urinary tract. There's ENT, otolaryngology, which does ear, nose, and throat. There's orthopedics. There's uh, trauma surgery. There's neurosurgery. There's cardiac surgery. Those are all subspecialties within surgery. And back in the olden days, even plastic surgery too, you first had to become a fully trained general surgeon. Mm -hmm. And then you would do additional fellowships for X number of years to subspecialize in those fields. These days, they realize you know, you probably don't need to do that. So they have programs now that you apply right away to be a cardiothoracic surgeon, or you apply right away to be an ear, nose, and throat surgeon. And they don't make you do a whole general surgery training. They usually have you do a year or two at the most of general surgery. And that's really it. So at, at the end of your internship, most people pick a, have to pick a specialty or they do pick a specialty? No. So that's the olden days. That's... Um, these days, you already have applied during medical school. Oh, okay, okay. And what you get into is is your thing. Okay, so that's not what you did. You did. That, yeah, that doesn't happen anymore. No, you already kind of apply for what you're interested in, and you get it. There are some people who don't get into their program and do like a, a year or a two years kind of saying, hey, I'm just going to do a year of general surgery or two and then try to reapply to something. That does sometimes happen. Are you that's happy not the program was the way that it was when you went through it? Like, because you you learned all about general surgery? So for me, it worked out. Um, and then I did this cancer surgery fellowship, you know, two years after that. So for me, it worked out. I like general surgery. Uh, I don't necessarily like the lifestyle and all the emergencies, but I, I like general surgery. So that's that's what worked for me. All right. In TV shows, they also show doctors hanging out in comatose. We saw this in house patients' rooms. Does that ever happen? Like, uh, like you just need a break. You need to eat your lunch. Will you ever go like sit with a patient that's um, <laughs> no not, way, especially not especially not with like infectious diseases and infections and things like that. No way, you never would, and you probably wouldn't even spend that much time caring for a comatose patient being in the room unless you were just you maybe quickly examine them or you'd you certainly want to just like hang out and ponder things unless you're doing a procedure on them. Okay. And then when you have really long surgeries, are you allowed to like have a snack or take a bathroom break or not at all? So sometimes during long surgeries, we will deliberately uh, have to go pee, you know, and you scrub out for a minute at a, at a safe spot in the surgery and you run out and you pee or, uh -huh. or, uh, if you haven't had anything to drink, you'll run out and quickly drink some water and drink some coffee and then scrub back in. You're not okay. going to do it during a crucial part, but there are definitely parts of the surgery where, where, 
you know, you could take a break for a minute. Okay. And often, you know, on those big surgeries, there are a couple of surgeons. So one may stay in the room, the other will take a break, you know, and then the other one goes out. But it's literally just to do your whatever you got to do, and then you come back in. Okay. Last question. Have you ever seen doctors yell at each other, like in front of other patients? Have you ever seen doctors get in a fight with each other? Rarely. It's pretty horrible. Yeah. Okay. It's pretty, pretty horrible. It's so unprofessional. Yeah. But you've seen it. Yeah, but not as much as they make it make a thing of it on the shows. No way. Okay. Uh, but but it does sometimes happen, and it's yeah, it definitely is not as much. But sometimes, sometimes, especially in, with the residents before the, you know, they're still kind of young. They're still students. They're still kids. They're still learning. There's a lot of you know, there's still sleep deprivation, and they're worked really hard, and there's a lot of emotion. So sometimes they could get into it even. Okay. It's not zero. It, it definitely sometimes happens. Okay. What else? Laura? No, that's it. That was a rapid fire round of questions and you handled it very fun. well. I learned a lot and uh, I know my husband's going to be happy because he's, he's just, he's all about the questions lately for you. Cool. I love it. Anytime. Thanks for joining us at Gross Anatomy. Next week we have a special guest. Very cool. Bye. Thanks Lauren. Bye. That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.